Welcome to Ronin Rescue Cast number 30. We've now hit into the 30s. Uh, we've been away for a bit, uh, still in and out of town. This one here, not an interview. We're going to answer some questions that come in from people that are listening out there, like yourself, and just throw some opinion down. We get a lot of questions back and forth about products, about organizations, about places people should go or what they should do. So we've got some interviews lined up in the future for your next podcast, but this one here, you're going to have to listen to me drone on for a little bit, and I'm just going to answer some of these questions that come up. Uh, the first questions we're going to go through is in regards to equipment. We get a lot of questions about what equipment's this, what equipment's that. Now, we work with a lot of manufacturers. Let me just bookend the conversation with that. We've probably worked with every major manufacturer and then some on gear, whether that's doing R&D on stuff that you haven't seen yet, whether it's doing R&D on stuff that you have heard of, or whether it's something else entirely. But needless to say, um, we do work with a lot of manufacturers and a lot of the answers to these questions, it's going to come with the big, it depends. And I'll give you the first one. The first question we have is, what's your harness preference? I own, I own a ton of harnesses, but primarily I am using four harnesses. I have a Petzl of Veo. I have the new Camp ANSI. Uh, it was the ANSI GT. The three, uh, class three, not the class two one. I am running a prototype CMC Atom still. And then I have a combination that I'll talk about in a second. So why so many harnesses? The Aveo, I run a lot of. Um, everybody I think has had a Petzl product. It's kind of what we grew up on in the rope access industry in North America. You kind of go back to what you know. I do find it probably the lightest harness that I wear. Um, it's fairly light, and I like that. But like all of the harnesses, I do add in an extra Petzl uh, ring or Petzl open um, into that harness in order to facilitate extra devices in there. So you're kind of going, what extra devices? Um, Basically, what we're looking at is we take a ring open, we put it in down by your bottom D-ring, and I'll just refer to it that way so that everybody out there is listening as opposed to start talking ventral and sternals and dorsals. Um, so your bottom ring that you usually repel off of, um, I run an extra ring open in there, and I do that so that I can attach, for instance, my lanyards on one and my controlled descent device on the other. And I do that with all the harnesses that I have. I have that extra ring in there on those harnesses so that I can separate those pieces when things start getting full. If I'm doing, you know, pickoffs for sprat type work, or if I'm just out doing grimp days, and my lanyards and my control descent devices will change positions depending on what I'm doing. If I'm competing at a grimp where I'm using it more for travel, restraint, edge protection. I'll leave them low, leave my, I run a rig up high. Or 
if I'm running like rope access courses where I'm doing horizontal aid and that has a tendency then to push up, I'll run them topside and then run my control descent devices underneath so I still have access to them. So it's very dependent. So backtracking, the pencil, I find a light harness. Um, I'm also six foot two. Uh, 200 pounds. I have nice, no. Um, yeah, six foot two, 200 pounds. So I run a size one Petzl. I run it fairly tight on my waist. I'm running uh, 34 waist just to give you guys an idea out there. And I find that European style harness fits me a bit better than the North American style harness. Same as all the Petzl. I do find that the leg loops do loosen off on them. That is one downside to it. And I'm running uh, a newer, older an older, newer harness that's got the smaller crawl, not back to the larger crawl. And obviously that does have some hiccups to it. With larger diameter rope, not that we're running that, but if I'm training certain fire departments and I end up on 12 and a half, that crawl doesn't work very well, if at all on it. And needless to say, that becomes a bit of an issue as well. So let's hang on one. That obviously becomes, like I said, a bit of an issue. So it leads me to my other one. Um, the Camp, the new Camp, not the older GT ANSI, uh, black harness. It's got a built-in area for the seat, that, or a comfort seat, so you can attach it in for running rope access. Once again, it's more of a European-sized harness. It fits me a little better, I find, than the Aveo. The, um, it fits a little better in the waist for me, a little better in the legs. Um, so generally that's not a bad thing. And I, you know, once again, add in that extra ring underneath there. I do like the leg buckles. They have that new ANSI buckle on the camp harness. Uh, really easy to get in and out of. And I find it doesn't slip. So primarily for rope access work, I'm running either the camp, um, the new camp GT ANSI or I'm running the Petzl Avail for my rope access work. Running into rope rescue now or into grimp competitions, I have been playing more and more with the CMC Atom. And as I mentioned, I have a prototype of that. I've done a couple of custom things to it. For instance, I cut the what's known as the E-rings or the confined space lifting points off of it just to, to shed weight. Um, I run soft sides on that. I had it custom done that way. So instead of having metal D-rings on the side for work positioning rings, I run soft. They're 5,000 pounds still. Um, I like it that way because I can squish them down to get into confined spaces. So once again, when I'm running the camp or I'm running the Petzl, the Aveo or the GT, I have the metal rings on there on rope access. When I'm moving into rescue, I go to a soft ring. I would really like them to make soft rings on the dorsal and the sternal, so your back and your upper front as well, because really the only place I want the metal ring is down low. It lightens up the harness for me, and it also, when I'm running rescue, I'm not using those in the same fashion that I'm using them in rope access. Yes, I'm one of those lucky people in the world that can get a multitude of harnesses. Um, the joys of having a rope rescue, rope access company. Uh, the things, both the Atom and this has changed. I'm running a prototype. I find that the upper um, class three portion of the harness isn't quite as stiff, the original webbing, and it did fold over a bit, and they have definitely started to stiffen that up. 
they run it with uh, CT uh, chest from Climb Technologies, and it's a bit of a larger one. The camp harness, I'm running a camp turbo chest on that. So I have a different chest to sender for each one. I do like the um, little pulleys on the camp turbo chest. I like the larger one though for the rescue harness, just because a lot of times when I'm running rescue training, a lot of times I'm training fire departments and I'm back into 12 and a half mil rope. We're running, as you all know, 11, 10 and a half at Ronin, but sometimes up in the fire departments where I'm into 12, 5, 12, 7, and that provides a little bit more opportunity to utilize that harness. I also find that that harness, it's a little bit heavier, it's a little bit bulkier, but when I'm running rope rescue, I'm carrying a ton more crap on me generally than when I'm running rope access. Everybody knows the rope access rules over a certain amount of weight, you're usually rigging it separate. When I'm running rope rescue, if you've ever seen us running around at Grimp, I'm probably weighing in at an extra 50 pounds for all the crap I've got on me. And I find just with the, the larger, like wider, thicker waist belt, that supports the weight a little bit more. And kudos for CMC on that because I'm running a lot of weight on that belt and it's not slipping. So those are the two rope access and the rescue harness I use. And I said I do carry one more. That is a Petzl Falcon Mountain. And I have added in uh, the Courant ring. I've been trying that ring. It's um, a key lock style with um, Allen's, Allen screws in it, and a Petzl open ring on it, or ring open. Um, and what I do with that is, because the Petzl Mountain is a climbing style harness, it's got the soft belay loop. So I have backed up that soft belay loop with an aluminum ring. And then I've also clipped another aluminum ring on there so that if I'm running a device like a rig or an ID, that device is in the right plane on that ring. So I have one ring backing up so it's basically sitting vertically on the harness backing up the belay loop and then I have run another ring through both the belay loop and that ring so it's sitting horizontally like your standard um, D-ring so that I can run rescue devices on it. Do I have to do that? I don't know if I need to back up that ring. I'm just thinking for usability and durability of that particular harness. That way I'm not always wearing off on that belay loop. The other thing I clip into there, I run a Helix Tactical chest for that harness and it has a built-in um, chest descender on it, a very small one on that. It'll only run up to 11 mil rope and that gets clipped in with a locking carabiner into that belay loop, hence why I have that Petzl ring open on that one so that it's not wearing on the belay loop constantly as well, although I do catch both points. So you're thinking here going, what's the point of that? Why do you have this other harness now out there? I do a lot of travel, I travel like worldwide as most of the people that listen to us know, and I can take that Petzl Mountain with those rings, because it's aluminum rings, nice and light, and that chest, and I can stuff it in my carry-on. So if I'm traveling places, I can basically strap my helmet to the outside, throw my carry-on in there, or throw the harness into the carry-on, and I'm moving. Where a lot of the other typical or you know usual class three harnesses are a bit larger, a bit bulkier, and so that does cause me you know a little bit more usability when I'm traveling. I can go lighter, I can go faster. I'm not hauling a million bags with me when I'm teaching. A lot of times when I teach. I only need to be in a class two harness. 
Um, a lot of times when I'm teaching overseas, the class three harness requirements aren't quite as stringent as they are in North America. And a lot of times I'm not necessarily on rope. I'm using it as a travel restraint device while I'm teaching on an edge. If I have to go on rope and start climbing or whatnot, yeah, I throw that on there. I also have a Petzl swivel on the top of that harness, that um, Helix Tactical chest. And that allows me to clip a carabiner in there and it operate and I can take that in and out as need be so that it's a little more usable when I'm playing in the rescue systems with it. So that's generally the harness setups I have. Yes, not a real easy answer on that. Um, controlled descent preference. So I've used Petzl Simples, Petzl Stops, Anthrons, Rigs, IDs, MPDs, Clutches, Druid Pros. I'm sure the list goes on. I'm not a fan of the MPD. I think it's a great device in regards to what it does. It is a high efficiency pulley and a device you can do changeovers with. In the students that I've taught though, it's not intuitive to rig. I have seen it rigged wrong on numerous occasions. And the operation of it, I mean, all devices, obviously you have to defeat them to operate them into lower. But there is a lot of discussion now about having to tail rope with this or how we're doing, you know, these sort of lowers with the MPD. Just the size of it, the mass, the bulk, not my favorite device out there. So in the past, and I'll get into the future with the clutch in a minute, but in the past, I've typically run more IDs, rigs, or Druid Pros. Yes, they're definitely not as smooth. They do not have the efficiency that an MPD does. I'm readily aware of that. Um, I prefer the rig if I'm doing competition stuff, and I prefer it because it doesn't have the panic features on it that an ID does. When I'm moving or when I'm doing rope axis and I'm going from vertical to steep slope to vertical to steep slope, I can bury the handle of that rig when I'm running around on steep slopes or roofs and move around fairly easily. Of course, having my backup on being an ASAP lock or another type of device, but that does allow me to move that where with the ID of always getting into that situation where it locks out and you're always trying to find the sweet spot with it. I just find the rig easier to use in that capacity. Druid Pro, I run that when I lot when I teach. Once again, I have that lightweight kit when I teach, Druid Pro, small little device, very usable though. We rigged the Highline scenario at Grimp Day North America. We had to go down in January, rig all of those and practice and make sure we could do all of those scenarios in the time frame before, you know, while we were creating that event. And we ran that whole Highline scenario between the smokestack and the front um, uh, flag area there. Uh, off Druid Pros, um, and not a problem. I mean, works fine. Obviously, it's for uh, smaller diameter rope, uh, you know, more 11 and a half or 11.1 as opposed to your 12 and a half. But when I'm traveling, I utilize that particular device. It provides me with a controlled descent device. It provides me with something that I can use to use for edge restraint if I tie it off, what have you, and allows me then to excuse me, allows me then to have something small to pack out. So that's where I said, you're gonna get a lot of this where certain devices I use for certain applications and certain I don't. 
the clutch coming out. I've said it before. I think the clutch is going to be a game changer. It's, you know, the size of an MPD with a high, or sorry, <laughs> smaller than an MPD. It's the size of an ID with a small, with a high efficiency pulley in it. For rescue, I certainly think it's going to be the way forward. Even with rope access, I think it's going to be a device that a level three, either a rat or a sprat um, supervisor on site has in order to pull rescues. We did a pitch head halt on a twin tension rope system underneath a 30 meter bridge uh, when we were training with Mechelen fire outs in just outside of uh, Brussels, Belgium last year. And the guys did body weight pitch heads on that thing, just, you know, running it up. And then they were suspended just with a foot loop and uh, sorry, a, cro- um, a foot ascender on the tail of the rope and just standing up and doing body weight uh, simultaneously on twin tension rope. And they moved a one kilonewton load up into that 30 meters, so 100 feet, without a lot of issue. Like it was pretty darn smooth. And that's where I think that's going to be kind of the device of the future, just because of that high efficiency pulley and the size of it. And it was not that we're, you know, um, not trying to build mechanical advantage. It was just one of these things where it's like, hey, let's give this a shot and see how this looks like, see what this works, if it works. So uh, there you go for that. Carabiner preference. Once again, a lot of this is situationally dependent. I run a lot of um, Rock Exotica products. I run Rock D auto lockers, and I run Rock Pirate Orca locks. My Ds are generally red. My Orca locks are generally orange. The reason for that is when I'm rigging Anchorage, I usually use the Pirate Orcas, just the way that they're configured, the pull-up, pull-down mechanism, the way I'm using them for like a horizontal aid or at an anchor, I am using the same muscle memory that I do if I use a Rock D, which is the pull-down, the uh, Orca being the push-up, but because I'm using them at an anchorage and rigging to them, it's the same muscle memory at that point to utilize them. So I'm using the D's when I have to reach and clip. I'm using the orca pirate with the orcas on them when I have to rig or horizontal aid. And that separates it on my belt. I know what I have and what I don't have for different things. And it allows me to move forward. I usually carry one steel carabiner and I use that on the rig or the ID where the gate swings open. And then I have a steel carabiner with me and I just, it's a matter of preference on those for that gate. I've worn aluminums fairly significantly in that configuration. I carry one parabiner with me. A lot of times I'm using the DMM parabiner for that. I do like that, the auto locker on that. In case I got to run munters or monster munters. I also run the rock um, ovals in the aluminum auto lock as well. I'm running those for like things like my grillions and anything that's got to go slack loose, slack loose a lot. Then I'm utilizing that because the ovals have a tendency to fall in line on the spine more often than not. And that's how I push forward with my carabiner. So yeah, I just listed off like four different carabiners that I carry. And those are kind of the reasons why. I also carry some non-lockers. I'm using the uh, camp product for that. The, what is it, the nitro? Yeah. Oh no, the nanos, the nano 22s. And 
I use those for redirect carabiners. I use those for like clipping my foot loop into my basic, things like that. Even hooking up the odd mechanical advantage, anything where failure isn't really a huge issue. If I blow out, you know, a three to one, I'm on the device anyways, right? So those are lighter, faster, and I utilize those for those non-critical points. And they're good to carry water bottles around on. So those are the carabiners that are used. Uh, rope preference. That's another question that comes up. What rope do you prefer? And if you haven't figured it out yet, yes, it is all situationally dependent. Um, I do like the new G11. I like that when I'm teaching fire departments. We get a lot of fire departments that are, we got to use G-rated equipment. G11 is a great rope. We did a bunch of R&D on it for CMC. We took it to like gravel pits and cement plants and washed it and ran it through all that sort of crap. And when it came back, it was really stiff, wash it, boom, right back out and away we go. Nice supple rope again. So certainly I like that. There's only two G-rated ropes out there that are 11 mil right now that I'm aware of, uh, that and the Tech 11. Uh, the Tech 11, I just find we do a lot of sheath or kern and mantle separation, just the way it's built. Sorry. Um, just we seem to have an issue with that. We always seem to be wrecking that and having to uh, dip whip the ends of those. So I do like the G11 for that. As far as a rope goes itself, I prefer a 10.5 millimeter rope. And I prefer a unicor or a bonded or whatever word you want to use trying to be non-proprietary to BL or PMI or Kazan or Caranth or whatever. But I do like that bonded rope. And basically what they do, if anybody doesn't uh, know what that is, when they stitch your rope together, they put in, from my understanding, filaments that they can then put the rope in the oven, they bake that, that filament melts and then melts the kern and mantle together, which gives you one rope. PMI has the unicore, BL has a unicore as well. Um, Kazan has a rope, and I believe Courant has a fused rope as well. Um, and those ropes, very good for that. Uh, Tufo Burger has, I believe it's their Platinum Pro that's stitched together every three feet. Once again, it does the same thing because it keeps the kern and mantle from separating. I do find that the truly bonded ropes as opposed to the stitches gave me slightly higher uh, minimum breaking strengths. For instance, the 10.5s that we're running are running about 32 kN. So for me, those are nice strong ropes and the 10.5s a little bit lighter. Once again, we travel a 200 foot 10.5. I can put into like a ridge rest bag like that's how small I can get that down to um, so yeah that's one of those things where situationally dependent we do use other styles of rope we did a, a high line for a uh, utility company where we had to do a 700 foot high line 200 feet off the ground we used isostatic ropes on the track being you know we can almost use cable calcs on those uh, we used a Sterling Tech 11s with um, the tougher sheaths on them for the controls because we were rubbing off of the utility stuff and we just we couldn't avoid it. Uh, 700 foot of utility where this gas line was going, we were physically unable to pad out every place this rope could possibly rub. So we decided to choose a rope with a bit of a thicker sheath. So there is still a lot of that dependent on what we're doing. Really wet weather, I prefer a 
a sewing or a unicorn type technology because you don't get the slippage of the sheath and what have you. So different stuff calls for different rope. We're also running nine, nine and a half, down to eight smaller diameter systems, depending on if we're working with tactical units, if we're doing confined space rescue with smaller diameter. So once again, situationally dependent on the rope. And these are things like your team's going to have to go figure it out. What I run in fire when I'm running on the fire department and what I run for Ronin and what I run for Ronin and rescue and what I run for Ronin, like rope rescue and confined spent rescue and what I run for rescue and rope access are all different ropes depending on the situation. Um, Vortex versus Teradapter. Next question we get asked a lot. We own one of each. Um, we've been to kind of the train the trainer programs for both of them. They both have their pros and cons. A lot of teams have vortexes. Uh, they were the first out to the market. And it's a great tripod. I find personally that I can do more with the Teradapter. That is both a pro and a con. When we're teaching teams, depending on the sophistication and the just basically how, how good the team is, you know, a vortex, you can only do so much. You can only rig it certain ways, especially with the head. And as such, it's easier to teach to those teams. When we get into a higher end team or we're doing weird stuff at Ronin, we'll pull out a teradapter because with the head movement and the lash rings and the quick lashes, we rig that into places I'm pretty sure the manufacturer doesn't want us to. I'm pretty sure we do with the Vortex as well. But if you ever checked out AERT stuff, I mean, they got a picture of a teradapter. And it looks like a fish on a line. And the thing's got a big wow in the end of it uh, when we're looking at cantilevers and stuff. So we have a tendency to push the teradapter a little more. That being said, the Vortex was first on the market. Teradapter probably took some pieces from that. The Vortex has now come out with things like the Azorp and items like that that have definitely pushed it back into, you know, more riggable solutions than what it was previously. So generally, it becomes really situationally dependent. A lot of the teams we teach, a lot of the fire departments we teach, we teach on the Vortex just because they have them, they were out first, and they are a little simpler to rig. A lot of the higher-end stuff we do or when we do weird rope access jobs or we need access to bizarro things, we'll end up pulling out the Teradapter. And for me, I do, like I say, sorry, I know the guys that make them both. I do prefer the Teradapter just a little bit more. And that's just me and my rigging style. And I just like rigging a little bit more stuff. And that's just personal preference. And sorry for whoever's listening. Um, well, there is a new one coming out. Axel Mance is working with a company in Europe to come out with a new style of uh, artificial high directional. It'll be interesting to see what that one looks like as well. Uh, next question. Uh, Aztec kits. I'm curious to your thoughts about them or any small MA, Petzl Jag. You got the ISC Hall Beaner, uh, what have you. Um, benefits, limitations, uses. That's what we've been asked about. I'm a Grillion guy. Uh, if I have to, if I have all these, if I have an Aztec and an SMC HX and an ISC Hall Beaner or a pre-made set of fours, 
I'll grab my grillion. I prefer a five meter grillion with a roll clip carabiner. And I'll grab a T-block as well in case I need to drop that roll clip down for whatever reason. Otherwise, I'll clip it into the termination beaner. We talk about beaners. My termination beaner on my grillion is an ANSI approved beaner. Why? Well, we use run grillions that are ANSI CSA approved, so we can use them for travel restraints. So number one, I'm creating a, a compliance system, although I am putting it in with a uh, oval onto me. But number two, that gate will take a 3,600 pound side load or, you know, what's that, just shy of eight kilonewtons or for around eight kilonewtons. And uh, is it 36 or 16? Now I got myself guessing. But anyways, it'll take a heck of a, a side load hit on its 36. Um, and so for us, it allows me to take a few more chances than I would if I didn't have it. Um, so yeah, I'm not saying go out there and take chances with stuff, but I do look at it and go, hey, it does allow me with a little bit more if I you know, girth it or take it back on itself. Yeah, it's 3,600 pounds, 16 kilonewtons, sorry, not, not um, 36 kilonewtons. Yeah, 16 K and 3,600 pounds. But that allows me to, you know, do some stuff with it. You probably shouldn't, but, you know, you can kind of get away with it with that gate strength, so that. But yeah, so I prefer a Grillion. And I prefer it because I can do more stuff with it. And it's not that you can't do these things with, a set of fours. I'm just used to using a grillion. I grab it in the five meter length. I use it for tension lines. I use it for travel restraint. I use it for load transfers if I'm passing knots. I use it for um, attaching myself as the rescuer at the patient or the barrel boy if you're running mine rescue. I use it for helping me get over 90 degree edges. I use it, I used it for rescue out of eight on my last level three uh, test. So I use it for a lot of those things and I'm comfortable using it. I'm happy using it and it's my preference. That being said, uh, if guys follow our social media, they'll know Norm. Norm's an Aztec guy. Norm loves the Aztec. I mean, the Aztec, it's rated general use NFPA, at least if you buy them, you know, certain ones. Um, he, that's what he uses. That's what he uses as his attachment points. Um, we certainly, I, we use the Aztec on the feet of our stretcher. We generally run Purcells for the top into, we're running a old Focus rig plate right now. I believe it's uh, Conterra. I don't even think they sell it anymore. And we run an Aztec to the feet, so it allows us to pivot the stretcher between vertical and horizontal as we're moving up and down the wall. And that's definitely Aztec terrain. You know, it swivels quite nicely, even over another set of fours in there with the swivel on the Aztec, runs a lot nicer. Um, but yeah, guys like Norm, they love that particular product. They prefer that over other products. So yeah, you got your Aztec there. Some of the other ones, the Jag... Um, I've used it if I'm going to use a you know, small set of fours in an environment, I'll go to my home built, which is eight mil on uh, the small rock exotica pulleys with um, six mil Prusik on it, or I'll go to an Aztec. The bags on the Jag and the ISC Hallbeaner, I'm just not a fan of. I find they just kind of get in the way. They get hooked up. A lot of times I just end up ripping them off. Um, 
So if I'm going to end up using those devices, I just end up going to the Aztec. The other thing I find with the tooth devices, and this is definitely a user error. It's like, like there's, you know, this isn't on the manufacturer. When we teach a lot of this and we have students and they get to certain levels have to rebuild these things, uh, the SMCHX, for instance, if you don't have the camming device in the right spot, it'll see too much weight of the load and you end up shredding a lot of ropes. And as well, we find that students, when they get panicked, when they're new to the systems, they're really reefing that and pushing it and they're, they're doing very jerky, um, you know, harsh, you know, major motor skill movements. And we find with those cam tooth devices, they end up tearing them a little bit. Uh, the hall beaner with the smaller diameter rope, we find the students end up hand wrapping it a lot. And just when we're getting into the training, it's one of those things where you almost need to go back to the prussics on there, which are a little less damaging and a little more forgiving when it comes to students, especially when you're putting them at edge. And it doesn't seem to matter how much effort we put into the prior to doing that. As soon as they get on rope and they're hanging, they're just beasting on that thing. And we've had some issues in the past. And once again, it's not a manufacturer issue. They've built it. They've got instructions on how to use it. It's just we find with the newer users, there's issues with that. So there you go. Definitely have uses for both. And that's just a personal preference type of thing. I run a Rock Exotica leg bag. It's actually an Aztec bag. And I leave my five meter grilly on attached to my right leg. And it's permanently clipped into one of those. Remember I said I run the two rings. And that way, rip, clipped in with that oval beaner, I can move them up and down depending on what I'm doing with it. Whether I'm hanging from it or if I'm using it from travel restraint. Um, ITRA. People are asking about ITRA. I am a member of ITRA. Uh, I am a member because I think in certain parts of the world, it's certainly the implementation of standards, of some standard, should be there. Do I think it's necessarily required in North America? This is where I join because I'd like to see some of these things and I'd like input. I can sit on the sidelines and bitch about stuff or I can join and learn the systems and then have at least constructive feedback. And I haven't learned or seen all of their systems yet. So to give a lot of feedback would certainly be immature and premature. So what I will say, and the reason I say in North America is some of the systems they have don't line up with NFPA. I'm not going to sit here and tell you the NFPA is the end all be all. I don't think it is. But if I'm training fire in North America, they pretty much have to follow NFPA. So we get into this weird little area where, you know, an ITRA level two rope rescue technician has a different skill set than an NFPA operations uh, person would have to have. And so there is, there's definitely a lot of synergies in there and a lot of carryover, but there are some differences. And so to run one course to cover both, you're going to have to make the course a little longer in order to get all of those things in. As a training provider, I don't mind making longer courses. As a training provider that's been doing this since 2003, I know clients aren't interested in paying for longer courses for certifications 
unless those certifications are 100% valid in their location. So that's, that's the gap there. And I certainly think that there needs to be some discussion around those standards to take a look at them. And that's both in the confined space and the rope world. The yin to this yang is I certainly see the need for a standard, especially in a lot of places where no standard exists. There's a lot of places that we go where it's just like, hey, it's rope rescue, go nuts. Um, And you can do whatever you want. And those places for certain need to have some sort of standard. I also think that having a known database of people that have been qualified to a known standard will be useful as well. And it might not be useful today. It might not be useful tomorrow. It's going to take a bit of time in order to get to that. However, once there, it's certainly easy to go, oh, great. I mean, I look at it now and go, I'm going over next year to do EMP, I have IMP in English, one and two under the French GRIMP system. So I'll be EMP and du qualified. I'm ACMG climbing gym instructor qualified. I'm not saying, hey, yo, look at me or whatever, but I hold NFPA certs. I hold SPRAT certs. I hold ITRA certs. So when you look at this, it's like, depending on who I'm teaching and what I'm teaching them or where I'm working in the world, oh no, this hat's totally irrelevant, I gotta put this hat on, or this hat's irrelevant, it would be nice to have one standard worldwide, and you know, maybe that's a little unicornish and sunshines and rainbows of me that encapsulates all that, and maybe ITRA is that standard, where somebody can look and go, oh, that's the equivalent of an EMP2 or um, you know, an NFPA ops, or Uh, whatever the case may be. And that would be ideal because then that database exists, that standard exists, and then you can cross-reference a guy. So when I go to China or I go to Belgium, you can look in one spot and go, oh yeah, Mark's got that qual. He can teach here as opposed to, you know, a bunch of individual qualifications. Like I said, that might be a little bit too rainbow and sunshine-ish for the world, but it would be good to see it. So there's the yin and yang to me of ITRA. Um, last thing to chat about. It came up today in, uh, actually two things, sorry. Another thing people are saying, where should I go to get training and what have you? There's a lot of courses out there and I've, we've chatted about those before. Just chatted a little bit about ITRA. I want to talk a little bit about ITERS, International Technical Rescue Symposium. We're presenting with uh, Cracker Jack, Craig McClure down there on running ASAPs as your Prussics or your backups on your English Reeve this year. I don't want to give to a, what, give away too much on that, but that will be posted on both our YouTube and our blogs once it's presented at the beginning of November. And I want to say it's Albuquerque this year. And we're also presenting one on double track, double Reeve lines and how the forces get dissipated you know, the hypothesis is, does it work as jolt forces like Mothner found in the PEP-BC-SAR-NIF grant studies, or is it doing something else? So I don't want to give away the answers to that, but that's one that Kevin is going to be presenting just on behalf of Ronan. The first one we're presenting with uh, Craig McClure, we did the testing together with him. 
So this is the type of backyard testing that you get at Eiders. And it's not the end-all be-all. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I'm sure a real scientist can punch a whole bunch of holes in our testing methods. And we're not running sample sizes that are going to give you any sort of result that you can put a definitive answer and go, yes, that is X. Um, not going to happen. Uh, but it's one of those where it starts to open up your eyes and you can start to take a look and see different things that are out there and see where the community is generally going as a community. It's a great place to go to meet people, to network. All of the major companies that you would want to go and take a course with are there. All of the major manufacturers that you would probably want to buy gear from are there. And the people that are presenting I mean, heck, they had a guy the other year. The guy basically was a rocket scientist for Boeing. I mean, I'm, I'm pushing the boundary on that a little bit. And they made, they took high-rise wind calculations for when they built high-rises in the cities and applied it to trees in the Pacific Northwest to ascertain what the MBS of your tree anchor is. I mean, this is, it's cool stuff. And you go, hey, it's big enough. There's a lot of places we go and train where, Hey, it's big enough, doesn't work. And it's great to be able to call these guys and go, uh, lodgepole pine of this sort of diameter in this region. And they'll turn around and go, 112 kilonewton. Great, there's my answer. So, you know, this is some of the testing and some of the stuff they come up with at Eiders. And it's just a great place to go and learn things and just to see what's happening in the industry. Highly recommend it. So now to my last point, and then we're done. Flemish Reeve, or as the French call it, a PRM. I can't even remember what. It's Pouli something something in French, yeah. Pouli. Um, I can't even remember what it stands for at this point. We kind of know it in English as a Flemish Reeve. Basically, it's a Norwegian without the change of direction, you know, two-to-one pulley at the load and then anchored at the top. So it's basically two lines coming down to your load through a change of direction on your track lines with a single control line coming out the other side. Um, if you look at our Facebook pages from October 11th, that Friday with Eric in town from Mechelen, uh, you'll see pictures of what we term as a Flemish Reeve, what he terms as a PRM. That is the system that the team that had the accident in Grimp Day, I think it was 2014 or 2015, I wanna say 14, had where the patient ended up in the river. They were running that style Reeve system and they weren't using that control line on the other side. So of course, once the load starts moving and it isn't caught on that other side, as the load moves horizontally, of course, those two lines are only going through a change of direction, which now allows the patient to move down vertically. So as it, and this is what happened at that event, it was a slightly sloping high line. And as the load went down the high line, the package also lowered on it because it's just terminated through a change of direction on there. You're basically just moving. It's like a floating deviation. Without that back line on there, to hold the package in place so that it doesn't drop, and especially at speed, um, you do end up creating quite a dangerous situation, especially there, patient hit the water, the hydraulic forces picked it up, ripped the anchors out of the trees, 
and uh, Belgian commando. She got a medal of bravery for going for a swim and pulling her up. Um, kudos to her. And everybody was fine, which is why we can kind of speak about this incident. But that's definitely one of the downsides of a Flemish Reeve. And we just wanted to bring this up because we do get a lot of feedback on our social media about, oh my gosh, wow, how could you do that? You can kill somebody. No, yes, I guess you could kill somebody with anybody, anything we do on rope, but you need that opposing line in order to do that. The other thing we do with that, and if you look at our Facebook post from today, you'll see there is a strap to isolate the reeve or the Flemish reeve out. It's a blue um, sewing sling that the rescuer is using. So once he gets hauled up on those two lines, he's clipping into the becket of the pulley on the top, which is now neutralizing that change of direction, which means now as we move the rescuer up and down the track line, they're affixed to the track line. They're still on those two, you know, Flemish Reeve lines, but we've neutralized it at that point so that we don't have to worry about the patient dropping as we move those lines back and forth. It's very hard when you get these contextual things on a Facebook or on an Instagram because they're like, oh my gosh, look at the big bow in that line. Yeah, it doesn't really matter at this point because those are the two Flemish Reeve lines. Those lines have now been isolated because the patient's clipped back into the pulley on the track. If you live in a world where you need redundant systems, clip in twice, right? Um, but yeah, those are things where when we look at this and we get this feedback, we just thought we would mention that to it so that people have a little bit of context around that. So that's basically it. We just spent some time discussing uh, a whole bunch of equipment that we use. Stay tuned. We've got some great interviews coming up within the next couple of weeks. Um, as well, within the next couple of weeks, I think you're going to see the release of the clutch. So a lot of exciting times coming up. Uh, we'll be, just came back from China. We'll be going to Taiwan and then to Germany. And we'll also do a podcast just on some of the latest and greatest stuff coming out of there too. Until next time, have a great one.